Hey, welcome to the Fountain City Church podcast. Uh, we are really, really excited that you're joining with us today. Uh, we've taken a, a couple of weeks off of doing a midweek breakdown podcast. And then this past weekend, something really, really interesting happened. About halfway through the message, our ability to record just shut down. And so um, we felt like it was a really important message, though. And so I wanted to take some time today and uh, as awkward as it may be, kind of re-preach that same message or teach that same message um, just as part of our podcast so that we can release that. Um, it was a really powerful message for me. I wrestled with it for several weeks, and so we wanted to share that today as well. A uh, little disclaimer really fast. We are um, kind of pushing through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 34. Um, but one of the things that we're not going to address at all is verses 23 through 31 in this podcast. We won't talk about it. Uh, instead, I'm going to um, update a second podcast that talks strictly about Jesus's parable there where he's dealing with a kingdom divided against itself. And um, so we'll address that in another topic. Uh, in fact, it'll be in the podcast right beside this one or just beneath it. If you're looking on your, uh, your iPhone or whatever, then you can check it out just like that. Uh, but let me read Mark chapter 3 verses 20 through 34. I will read 23 through um, through 29 there, um, or through verse 30. But again, we won't address that directly in this part of the podcast. So it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his fi- family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, Jesus says, Who are my mother and who are my brothers. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is one of the most common human experiences we go through, I think, in the human experience is this feeling, um, this emotion, this experience of rejection and misunderstanding at the hands of our families and friends and those who have leadership in our lives. And chances are every single one of us, uh, all of you who are listening today, that you have experienced this at some point or in some way in your own life. Uh, Maybe a parent's accused you of something, uh, or a friend group turned their backs on you out of some conflict or argument that you had. Or maybe there's been a leader in your life who labeled and rejected you. And oftentimes these interactions paralyze us in anger or resentment or grief But as we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 34, we see that Jesus offers us a better way forward in dealing with rejection and misunderstanding at the hands of people that we truly care about. Uh, And so we want to ask the question, what does the life of Jesus tell us about weathering the storms of misunderstanding and rejection? In verse 20, we actually see that Jesus is doing so much ministry that it's keeping him and his disciples from being able to eat. Uh, Now, it's really funny to me that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back for Jesus' friends and family. In fact, the word that they use there for family um, who is coming to take charge of him or control him, it's the word associates. It's people who know him, they've been associated with him, and they have some kind of intimate relationship with Jesus. Uh, And so it's funny that that Jesus claims to be the Messiah and like there's not this big uproar all in that moment, but suddenly Jesus is doing so much ministry that he and his disciples are missing meals and his family's like, that's it. Like I 
cannot believe Jesus is so on this Messiah gig that he's missing, you know, his chicken dinner. Certainly we need to go and we need to take charge of him. Uh, I, this is really funny to me. Like maybe this is just a Jewish thing. I don't know. But what we find is that this is the thing that really pushes his family and friends, those who know him well, over the edge. And the response is uh, that they want to go and take charge of him because they believe he has lost it. They believe he's insane. And that word for take charge uh, in the Greek, it, it means to take into custody like you're arresting someone or to control. It's the picture of coming to control someone because you believe that they mentally have lost it. But then the passage gets really worse. I mean, you're already thinking, man, his family has rejected him. Jesus is suffering great loss at this identity. He, he knows who he is and who the Father has called him to be. And still, his family's rejecting him for that. But later, one verse later, we see that the teachers and the leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they actually come down from Jerusalem and they say that Jesus is possessed by Satan. And that that's the only reason that he's able to cast out demons. Now think about this. Jesus is devoting himself to the Father and to being obedient to what God has asked him to do. All he's doing is pouring out his life compassionately. People are coming with sickness and with with demonic possession and they're coming with, with, uh, with deaf ears and blind eyes and Jesus is simply responding in the compassion of God to people around him. And the response that he gets for For being obedient to the Father is rejection and misunderstanding. And we have to grapple with this. Jesus is introducing the kingdom of God into the culture around him. And because of that, there is a pushback from the surrounding culture. Now, I think that this is really important because every single one of us who is wrestling with what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and to follow Jesus with our whole heart, we understand that God is not asking us to add a little bit of Jesus to our day. That our imperative is not just to, you know, wear what would Jesus do bracelets, right? But that God is actually calling us to live as part of a kingdom culture. A culture that is centered around him as the ruling and reigning king of our lives and our world. And that we are citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. And so the way that you live in Columbus, Georgia, and in Phoenix City, Alabama, and in Smith Station, is that you are living in the kingdom of God, where Jesus is the ultimate king, and he is calling you uh, to what it means to be obedient to his way of life, and his way of thinking, and his way of doing things, in the midst of a culture and a kingdom that is utterly opposed to the way of God. And that's really what I want you to grab here. The kingdoms and the culture of the world are diametrically opposed to the kingdom and the culture of God. And this can be really tricky for us, uh, particularly for those of us who aren't in um, like very pronounced post-Christian communities. Like if you went to a, a Portland, Oregon or a Los Angeles, California, or even now I would say in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where it is very obvious that the cultural norm is not Christianity which I believe has been the case for decades. I just think um, that it's very pronounced now. I think it's a lot clearer. Um, But maybe you live in a place like Smith Station, Alabama, uh, where the cultural norm for many people is still that there is this expectation that people are going to follow the way of Jesus, or at least that people are going to go to church and talk about God and try to do things that seem Christian. This is sneaky for us. Because we tend to believe that the place we live, if we're not in highly um, progressive post-Christian cultures, that somehow our culture is favorable and even aligned with the heart of God. And I believe there is nothing further than the truth, or further from the truth, forgive me. There's nothing further from the truth. If, if, if I walk out of the church building, I'm in the auditorium right now, you may hear a little echo. But if I walk out this building and I walk down the street and I begin to talk about the way that Jesus commands us to live toward our enemies or in our sexuality um, or in terms of greed and how we share and give our money to others, I would quickly be um, pushed back because our culture has told people a very different thing. We, we are not in heaven. We are not in um, God's reigning kind of civilization around us. We are in enemy territory in terms of how we think and feel and the, uh, 
the laws that govern this land very differently from the laws that govern the kingdom of God. Uh, Our kingdom and culture of this world is in direct opposition to the kingdom and the culture of God. Now look at this. All it took for Jesus to get misunderstood and rejected was for him to be faithful to God and to spend more time healing people than other people were comfortable with. His, his compassion for people, uh, for, for those who had great needs and those who were sick, it was so great that it began to bump up against social and cultural norms around Jesus, and it started to agitate the system. And I think that this is really important for us to see uh, that when we live out these lives that are devoted to the way of Jesus, we will naturally, without trying, agitate the system because the heart and the compassion of God and the purity and the holiness of God always are contrary to the world and the culture around us. They're not the same. And I want to encourage you, if you're a Christ follower today, that in the same way that Jesus experiences misunderstanding and rejection, that we can gain solace from his life knowing that if Jesus himself has experienced these things, then we should also prepare our hearts and lives to experience the same kinds of things, right? But we see here in this passage two things, uh, two responses to this culture war, um, the culture of God's kingdom versus the culture of the world, that I think are really important for us to grapple with and to grab a hold of because I feel like we'll experience them in our own lives. Uh, And so the first um, response that we see here in Jesus' story in Mark chapter 3, verse 24, is, I'm sorry, verse 20, is we see his family move to control him, right? Now, now I think that this is really important for us to see that Jesus' family, their response to him living in obedience to the Father and living a life of compassion that bumps up against social and cultural norms, Um, they move to control him, not out of hatred, not out of malice, but it's out of unbelief. Jesus' culture no longer matches up with their culture, and it's causing his family to fear that something is wrong with him. I think that this is super important because there are many of you who are listening today or you're wrestling with what it looks like to follow Jesus. And when you stepped into following the Lord, you felt like, man, everybody is going to have my back and be behind me. I'm making a huge uh, shift in the way that I do life that is more compassionate. It moves toward peace and toward joy and sacrificial living. And then suddenly when you took that step, you started to feel resistance from your family and those who loved you most and your culture around you because you were moving outside of what was common and normal for them and it causes fear. And I I really believe that when we begin to follow the ways of Jesus with all our heart, that many people may think that you and I have gone crazy because of the way that we live. People will be convinced that you have lost it when you begin to follow Jesus. I think that this is something that we have to wrestle with, that faith is this supernatural transaction, that God has done something in our hearts and lives. He has changed us and shaped us, that even our language causes us to seem crazy to the world around us. And instead of resisting that and trying to make everything that we do cool, I think that we just need to grapple and grab a hold of the reality that God has called us to be different. And that that is going to cause people to judge us as being a little crazy. Uh, For years, um, I worked with this organization called Live Dead. And one of the things that I got to do with them, uh, with these specific teams, was that I would connect with people who were wrestling with this calling to go and work with unreached peoples all over the world. And one of the questions, like inevitably, when when I spoke to these, it was primarily like college students and young adults. When I talked to them, it almost always came down to the question of what do your parents think and will my parents allow me to go on this trip? That was inevitably we were going to land there at some point. And guys, I've got to be honest with you. One of the largest inhibitors, one of the biggest factors in people not being faithful to do what the Holy Spirit has called them to do is well-meaning parents who operated in fear instead of entrusting their child to be obedient to God no matter what. 
And it's insane. I mean, many of you, you have really well-meaning parents, well-intentioned, who are more grounded in the culture of the world around us than they are in the culture of the kingdom of God. And we know as Christ followers, like priority number one is that we are faithful to be obedient to what God says. And this is something that we have to wrestle with. And so I, w- I want to just tell you, when we experience this, um, this response of control from people around us, uh, we have to understand that controlling others is not a fruit of the Spirit. That control comes out of fear. Uh, and control can either be through force, like coercion, or through manipulation, uh, which is really a cultural response done out of fear. Uh, control can be like soft control, and I would say that soft control is manipulation. Uh, and then there's hard control. There's there's force. There's coercion. And so all over the world today, there are people whose families control them when they're trying to express faith. They physically hurt them or they um, lock them up or they do something physically where they're putting their hands on them and they're controlling their lives. But there's also this soft control where we subtly, uh, you experience this sometimes from people where people try to get you to take um, like a, a bypass to what God is asking you to do. They try to get you to take a side route instead of being purely obedient to what God has called you to do. And if I can just encourage you, I mean, I've got a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old now, and I'm wrestling with what it looks like to entrust more to them as they get a little older. And I can imagine if in 7 and 8 years, my daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, I feel like God has called me to go and to do this thing. And, and me having a heart for the kingdom, but still having a desire to protect and keep my daughter safe. I I recognize already that there is a tension. There's a tension in allowing my child to go and to take these steps of faith, of trusting that God is speaking to me, and that if I respond, that God rewards me um, with his presence and with his power and with his peace, and that he's going to provide for my life when I just step out and I trust him. I follow what he's saying. And so we need to be aware that for every single one of us, this is not just folks outside of us who are trying to control us, right? But we also recognize that this is a seed that can be in our own hearts, where we are still rooted in the culture that's under our feet. And when people begin to exercise faith to follow Jesus, that there are times where we move out of fear, we will move to control them. We will move to either force, forcefully, Um, take hold of them and take charge of their lives, or we will use soft control. We will manipulate. Uh, We will ask them questions that slowly turn the dial. We will bring their obedience down uh, in some way just so that we can kind of keep our hands on them. And again, Jesus experienced this. He, He felt this from his family who tried to take charge of him. Again, not out of hatred or malice, but out of fear. But listen to this, in their fear, in the fear of Jesus' family, they pressured Jesus to be disobedient to the Father. And this is the really important thing, that obedience to Jesus is everything. Listen to me, obedience to Jesus is everything. For the Christ follower, for the child of God, there is no higher call and command than for you to be obedient Jesus says it over and over and over. If you love me, you will obey me. If you don't love me, you won't obey me. Like, don't tell me that you love me and then go do your own thing. Don't tell me that you love me and then disregard my word and disregard my way of living and just live your own way and keep trying to apply mercy and grace and love and just disobey me over and over. No, if you love me, obey me. And so I have, to, I have to tell you, man, this is really dangerous. Jesus could have just folded to his family's way of thinking and been disobedient, even out of a desire to please his family. But obedience is God's love language. And so can I encourage you today, like if you've experienced the same thing that Jesus is experiencing from his family, that you have been called to be obedient. Sure, you, you have to wrestle with how do I How can I live in reverence and honor toward my parents, but also convey that I have to be obedient to God? Jesus, as a young boy, right, he's 12. He stays at the temple to ask 
teachers questions and to talk about the Torah and the scriptures because he knew that he had to be in his father's house. Like he knew early on that he was going to make some decisions that disappointed his physical parents because he had to be faithful to his father who was in heaven. And I think we have to wrestle with that and come to terms with that as well. So firstly, we find control to be one of the primary responses to living as part of God's kingdom and his culture. But the second is labeling and dismissing. Jesus' family controlled him, but Jesus' leaders labeled him and they rejected him because they were threatened by him. The Pharisees knew they couldn't control Jesus. So what do you do if you can't control somebody? You, you condemn them and you dismiss them. You just slap a label on them that makes it easy enough to categorize them and you put them over uh, in a box that you can easily discard um, or reject. And listen, when you challenge the culture around you because of faithfulness to Jesus, there will be a response from the world around you. Your life is meant to demand a response. And Jesus' life his actions, the way that he was acting among people, it demanded a response, right? I mean, he is spending his time pouring out in the authority of God. He is acting in compassion toward those who are sick and broken and in need of healing. And the Pharisees who had been proclaiming what the truth was, they had no authority. They weren't praying uh, and seeing people healed. Like there's that funny moment where Jesus is talking about casting out demons and he says, you know, if I cast out demons in the name of God, uh, and he's basically pointing out that whenever he's doing it, that there is power and authority, that the finger of God has come into somebody's life and the demons are fleeing. But then he says, by, by whose name do you cast people out? By whose authority? And I think Jesus, this was his, his funny way of saying, you guys have no authority. No demons are fleeing at your name. Your teaching comes with no authority. Jesus was walking in so much authority and conviction and depth of the Spirit of God that he's living in compassion. He's, he is pouring himself out, even to it, invading his mealtimes. And of course, it causes the Pharisees to look at him and to feel threatened. Their authority, their leadership is being threatened because this other guy is walking in power. Now, one of the warnings that I really want to sound clearly for us is that in our culture right now, um, inside and outside of the church, we move to label and dismiss people out of hand at a single mistake or failure. And, and I think that this is really important for us to grapple with and to grab a hold of, uh, that labeling and dismissing people are not the tools in the handiwork of God. That this has nothing to do with the Spirit of God or the way that God works. I'm all about truth-telling movements. I'm all about justice movements. I believe that God is behind that. But if I could encourage you, if you're a part of truth-telling and justice movements, that doesn't give you permission. If you're a Christ follower, you don't have permission to use the tools and the weapons of the world as part of your warfare. Like we have to synchronize our hearts around the fact that we are children of the kingdom of God and we do not have the right to use destructive weapons of the world like labeling and dismissing. God himself here, Jesus, was labeled and dismissed because his perspective and agenda didn't match the Pharisees. And everywhere I'm looking right now, we have made it far too easy inside and outside of the church to dismiss and label people when they don't fit our agenda. I remember when President Obama was elected into office. And because I'm a white person uh, in the South, uh, that means that I have grown up around primarily Republicans. And I, I kind of I hate those stereotypes, but I have to say, like, I've seen them over and over that primarily if you are Christian and white, somehow that lands on Republican. And if you are Christian and African-American or a person of color, that a lot of times that lands you in a Democratic Party. And I, I really hate that. Um, but what I recognize very quickly is that when President Obama was elected, all the labels and the stereotypes and the dismissive language was slapped on him immediately. And it was done in the church and outside the church. And now, I've got to be honest, we're on the other side of that envelope. And there were policies that I disliked about President Obama. And there are things that, that I really do not enjoy about our current president. But as soon as President Trump has gone into office, people have done the exact same thing on the other side of the envelope. And I, I have to say, shame on us. 
as the church of Jesus Christ, we have led the way in labeling and dismissing. And I'm not saying that there aren't moments of prophetic clarity, that there aren't moments of prophetic anointing. But when I look around, the smell test is telling me that we have a lot more world in our church than I care to admit. Where we label and we dismiss and we reject out of hand. And I think that we have to take care of not being quick to categorize and label people so that we can move them off and subtly control them, right? If I, if I can't control them, if I can't get somebody to do what I want them to do, then I demonize them and get rid of them. And I think that that is a demonic tool. And we have to be careful about that. Labeling and demonizing, dismissing people, that is not how Jesus deals with conflict. And if you find yourself using these tools of the world to deal with people and issues, you have joined the system of the world. And I want to encourage you. This is particularly important if you lean into a prophetic lifestyle, if you are speaking truth, if you are leaning into justice. Make sure that the Holy Spirit is filling your hands with the tools to come against uh demonic oppression and things that are breaking down justice and equity. Make sure your hands aren't filled with tools of judgment and dismissive, uh, dismissive language and labeling and easy categories. Every one of us is prone to go towards that stuff. 2 Corinthians 10.3 tells us this. It says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Listen to that. Verse 3, for we live in the world. He says we live in the flesh. But we don't wage war as the flesh wages war. We're, We're not destroyers of people. As Christ followers, it is not my goal to destroy other people. But it is my goal to bring everything into submission to the knowledge of God. And that means that I use different sets of tools. Our tools are to be spiritual tools. They're to point people back to Jesus. They're to bring people back to peace. They're to draw people back to restoration and reconciliation, not to burn people to the ground. I don't care who you are. I don't care how how, uh, terrible things um, are going outside of us or against the movements maybe we believe are important. We don't have any right as Christ followers to flush people. And I think that's really important. Does that mean that we don't tell the truth? No, it doesn't. There's obviously a tension here, right? But we do need to evaluate what tools are in our hands. And so the question I want to hold out to you is this. Does your life demand a response? In the way that Jesus' life demanded a response from other people, does your life demand a response? I also think it's worth saying that being misunderstood and rejected seems to be a standard experience if you're living as a Christ follower. It's it's standard. For many of us, we run scared of being misunderstood and rejected. But listen, if you're going to follow in the way of Jesus, you are signing up to be misunderstood and rejected. I was reading in 1 Peter today. He, He talks over and over about being strangers in the world. If you're a stranger in any context or environment, you are seen as someone who doesn't quite fit in, who doesn't hold the same value system, uh, and who is going to be misunderstood. And I can't help but to tell you guys that the greatest fear we have should not be rejection or being misunderstood. It should be having a sleepy, lazy cultural Christianity that bears no response from the world around us because it looks so much like the culture around us. Woe to us if people look at our lives and say, man, they look a whole lot like everybody else. They just talk about Jesus a little more. Woe to us, right? Like, that is terrible. I don't know the the great, like, present tense uh, version of the word woe. I think woe is pretty good. But, yeah, we've got to be, man, we have to be so careful there. John 15, 18 tells us this. This this is Jesus' promise of how the world's going to respond to you. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you like its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. 
If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And in verse chapter 16, verse 1, all this I have told you so that you won't fall away. Guys, we have got to lock our hearts into this, that the greatest terror for us cannot be facing rejection, condemnation, and even misunderstanding from the hands of men, but to live a life that looks too much like the culture around us. Jesus said it very plainly here. I've told, I'm telling you all these things so that you don't fall away. The reason that they hate you is because of my name that I'm putting in you. They don't know me. Now, three things that I think we need to see uh, as I kind of wrap this up. Number one is that Jesus anchors his identity and purpose in the culture and the kingdom of God. When Jesus is faced with rejection and misunderstanding, he anchors his identity and his purpose in the culture of God's kingdom. Said another way, whenever Jesus faced rejection, he reminded himself and others that he was doing life God's way. Verse 31 uh, through 35 bears this out for us. It says, when Jesus, his mother and brothers arrive, they're standing outside and someone goes in and calls Jesus. And this crowd is sitting around Jesus and they tell him, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus gives this really funny response. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he looked at the people seated around him. He said, here's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we don't like grab the nuance of this uh, because of where we live in the time period. Uh, But in ancient Near East culture, this would have been really offensive. Uh, for, For Jesus and for all the people in the room that he's sitting there with, your family says everything about you. It's... Your family says everything about where you're from and where you're going. Uh, Your family line tells who you are and what vocation you're going to have in life. It tells where you're going to live. It tells who you're going to marry. It tells everything. It tells the history of failure. It tells the history of success. And in this moment, when Jesus is faced with who his family is, Hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. Jesus very simply redefines who he is and what he's all about, right? He he looks at the people right in front of him and he says, that group of people outside that told who I was and where I was going and what my vocation is and who I'm going to marry and what my value system is going to hold, that is no longer what I call my, my family. But these people right here, those who are hungry to do God's will, those who are passionate to pursue the nature and the character and the compassion of God, this, this is my mother and my brothers. This is my family. He's saying everything about who I am and who I'm becoming is more connected to this group of people right here who's going after God with me than those people over there who are coming to control me because my culture doesn't match theirs. One of the most beautiful experiences that you can have is traveling across the world to find people who are coming to grips with the love of God and they're pouring out their entire lives. They're giving their lives to follow Jesus. And there is this revelation that you can have that you are more connected to them as your family, to those people who are pursuing the heart of God and who are learning how to be obedient to the, to the way and to the voice of Jesus than even their own family. I'm more connected to Christ's followers on the other side of the earth than I am to some of my own family members because of what God has done. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He re-identifies who he is in his way of life. And notice that Jesus is not being spiteful or dismissive, but he asserts that his identity and purpose weren't defined by that way of life any longer, but rather he finds his purpose and his identity in the family of God. So number one, Jesus re-identifies himself. But secondly, Jesus understands. If you've gone through this kind of rejection, this kind of misunderstanding and even condemnation, it's important for you to know that Jesus isn't impervious to the pain that you go through. That even Jesus in his divine nature doesn't absolve himself from being hurt and rejected. But in his humanity, he felt the sting of misunderstanding and he still remained faithful. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus has experienced pain. It's precisely because he's experienced the same kinds of rejection and cruelty that you have experienced that he is able to be our 
great high priest who represents us before the Father with compassion. You know, I was standing in this auditorium where I'm sitting right now, months and months back, and uh, we, my wife and I had been going through a, a family circumstance where we just felt deeply um, accused and um, even hated, mistreated, lied about, all those things. Just felt rejection, felt all of those things. And we had gone through seasons, and I had forgiven this situation over and over and spoken forgive, forgiveness, you know, to the, those people who I felt like had, had um, inflicted that offense against me. Um, and I was standing in here one day, though, and I felt like the Lord brought it back to my mind and heart. And I realized that I needed to forgive them again, but this thing felt so entrenched, this offense, this heartache. And I felt like, you know, one of the things God has been urging me toward personally uh, in the past couple of years is learning how to be human again. Learning how to not be robotic in the way that I deal with emotions and hardship and circumstance. Uh, because for me personally, honestly, I would go through rejection and hurt and pain and I would bottle it up. As a man, I just I didn't like dealing with the emotions and the, the vulnerability and fragility that came with those feelings. And so I tended to just put a cap on those things um, and just act as though nothing was happening at all. And the problem is with that, that I had turned very robotic. I, I would quickly say that I had forgiven a situation, but to be honest, I hadn't. I, I had no capacity to fully forgive it because I didn't even allow myself to feel it. And so one of the things God was really urging me toward was to become human again, to allow things to affect me, to understand my own fragility because it was there that, that the Holy Spirit wanted to meet me and to, to heal me and to heal my heart. And so I'm standing here and I feel like God is asking me to forgive them again. Um, but I told him, I said, Lord, it feels like you're asking me to do the divine thing, the supernatural thing, which is to show mercy and to forgive. And then on the other hand, you're asking me to be human not robotic, to feel all the pain and the tenderness and the heartache that comes with this humanity. And I said, I don't know how to do that. And I felt so clearly the voice of Jesus just say, that's me. Like, Grant, you have dehumanized me. You have read these passages and have felt like I didn't feel any pain just because I was fully God. But the beautiful reality that Jesus is fully man it, it makes space for the fact that Jesus went through the same pain, that he felt the sting of rejection. That when his mom and his brothers, when they rejected him, he felt the cruelty of it. He was crushed. It hurt his heart. When Pharisees and teachers of the law came around and said that he was possessed by Satan, it, it hurt him. And I realized that I had dehumanized Jesus. I had made him fully God, but I didn't and couldn't come to terms with his humanity because that was too challenging for me. That meant I had to come to terms with my own humanity. And, and I want to encourage you, if you're listening today, you're going to have to come to terms with this fact that Jesus was human. And that is way stickier, right? It's easy to see Jesus forgive people as God. It's harder to figure out how Jesus purely forgives people when he feels all the pain and the suffering that comes with his humanity. But that's exactly what we see here. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is qualified as our high priest. He says we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every single way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so maybe you're out there and you're listening today Maybe you have undergone incredible amounts of misunderstanding from family and friends and loved ones. Um, and maybe you've been rejected by leaders or labeled and dismissed. Can I encourage you? There is someone who understands and who meets you in your brokenness and pain. That you are not alone. That you are not the only one who has undergone this. There are scores of people in the walls of churches, but there is a perfect one who understands and who can meet you right there. And so many times we want to bring our strength to Jesus. We, we want to, even in our, our time of silence where maybe we're studying the scripture or we're spending time in prayer, we want to bring our best to him. And can I encourage you that Jesus is not under some illusion that you've got it going on. 
he is he is perfectly okay with you bringing the fragments of your broken and shattered life in conflict uh, in misunderstanding in rejection and bringing that to him this is really really important Jesus isn't less of a human because he's God he, he is exactly human and exactly God and he feels everything you feel and he knows what you've gone through so can I encourage you to run to Jesus if you're feeling these things and you don't know how to get through them run to Jesus let Jesus teach you what to do with this kind of uh, misunderstanding and rejection thirdly and finally Jesus destroys the power of sin I believe that Jesus teaches us here that he doesn't just simply um, want to like take on these emotions and then, you know, like move on from his family and reshape his life around a different group of people. That's not fully what we see. We, we actually believe that there's something more happening here. I, I think that Jesus is teaching us not to form an identity around our pain and not to turn our trauma into an idol that masters us. But Jesus teaches us that because all sin has been dealt with on the cross, that the way we respond to rejection and pain is very different than the way the world deals with it. And I think this is really important. For many of us, we, we, we see countless people around us who have formed their identity um, and their lifestyle around their trauma and their hurt. And, and I think that there's something in our culture right now, like we love the idea of empathy, but we idolize brokenness. We idolize trauma. And I believe in the way of Jesus, we do not see that. We don't see Jesus demonizing people who have been a, a part of his rejection. Interestingly, on the cross, Jesus takes time to make sure that his mom is cared for. Right? This lady who came, who sh- she said he was insane. Right? <laughs> like, Jesus didn't separate himself from her forever. Jesus didn't flush her. But he takes time on the cross to look at John and say, Look, John, behold, this is your mom. Take care of her. This is a woman that I care about. She is now yours. Please take charge of her life. Love her. Pour yourself out for her. Be the one who shows up for her. Church history also tells us that two of Jesus' brothers, who more than likely were with this group who went to take charge of and to reject Jesus as being insane, two of them began to follow him. They put their faith in their brother as the Messiah, and they started to follow in his way. James, one of the great fathers of the church, and Jude, both write books in the New Testament. And so it's really important for us to understand that this kind of rejection didn't mark Jesus to where he lived with a grudge toward those people who had hurt him. But that Jesus actually, he deals with this in forgiveness. This rejection doesn't master him. It doesn't master his perspective of who his family was. Why? Not because the offense didn't hurt, but because the cross pays for sin, all sin, once and for all. Now, this has been quite a revelation for me, even as I've been like thinking through this and praying through this passage. We believe that the cross has paid for all of our sin once and for all, right? I mean, like none of us out there, none of you who are listening would say, yes, I reject that notion. Hebrews tells us it paid for sin once and for all. Um, What we understand is that even on the cross, at the moment when Jesus He can say whatever he wants to, that he doesn't even label and dismiss the Pharisees. He forgives them, those who labeled him. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so Jesus is not holding grudges, but he is actually dealing with those offenses and he is putting them to death by the cross, which is paid for everything. I gave this illustration this past weekend, but many times when we come to terms with what, uh, with how God forgives our sin, we tend to think in terms of how God forgives our sins, my sins. And so when I go to sin against someone, we believe that by me putting my faith in Christ, that the sacrifice of Jesus has paid for that sin once and for all. And he's not only paid for that sin in the moment, but my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins. That he is, He's actually conquered the power of big S, sin, right? Like it's, it's broken. There is no power in that sin. But I often think of him forgiving my personal sin towards somebody. But the problem with sin is that sin is never unidirectional. It's always two-way. And so not only does God forgive the sin that I commit against someone, but God has forgiven 
By the cross, Jesus has forgiven the sins that are committed against me. And here's the problem with sin. If, if you can imagine today, if I took a baseball or a softball and I just like dipped it into a nasty, sludgy tar, sticky and black, and it rubs off on everything it touches. What if I took that baseball or softball covered in tar and you're wearing a perfectly crisp white shirt and I toss it to you and it just hits against your crisp white shirt and it leaves this nasty mark and stain on it. That is what sin does. It may have been my sin. I may have thrown it at you. I committed it against you. And yet, that sin left a mark on your life. Not only does it mark us on the outside, but sin gets into us. And so there are times when, when uh, someone sins against me, and even though it was their sin, I can actually let it fester into bitterness and resentment and hatred and anger. And so suddenly the sin that started off as theirs, it has become part of me. And I have manifested, I have given power to sin to take root in my own life. And what we have to understand uh, is that Jesus came both to pay for the sins that I commit and the sins committed against me. And that the cross of Jesus paid the price for all of it once and for all, both toward us and from us toward others. So no matter if it's my sin or if it's their sin, Jesus has paid the penalty of sin by the violence done on the cross. Now, the caveat is that doesn't mean that we act like someone's sin isn't hurtful, right? Matthew 18 still tells us, like, if someone sins against you, go to them. You go to them and you talk to them about it. So again, we're not, we're not supernatural robots. We're not just going through life acting like things don't bother us. That's actually a real problem. Because that creates the kind of environment that is perfectly uh, suited to germinate resentment and bitterness and hatred. But when we deal with those things, we understand, we understand here that Jesus has paid the penalty of that sin by the violence of the cross. That part of our role in dealing with sin is that we can confront that sin, but we also learn that the power of sin has been forever fractured by the cross and that we can absorb that confront it in brotherly love and deal with it and move on. And that we don't have to live idolizing the trauma. We don't have to live uh, letting sin master us, even the sins done against us, but that we can live free from that. That Jesus has broken the power of sin forever. So what happens when we look for vindication and justice outside of the cross? And we're, we're actually living in unbelief. We're actually moving against the redemption price for our own souls when we are looking for payment, when we, when we can conjure up a face and a name and think to ourselves, they owe me. That person owes me. We, we are moving against the price that was paid for us. And so Jesus calls us to this different way. We, we confront sin, like Matthew 18 says, we go to that person one-on-one. If they can't hear us, we go back with a brother or sister um, who can be trusted. And if they still don't hear us, then we go to the larger church and we talk about this. And we, we figure out, man, how do we deal with this kind of sin? But for me personally, my goal is to understand that the power of sin has been broken. And so the penalty for people's sins against me has been paid. And so I do my very best to confront sin, absorb the actual offense so that people don't feel like they have to pay, and I count it paid for by Jesus. Right? Jesus said this. When his disciples are asking him, Lord, will you teach us to pray? He says, pray like this. Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive the sins that are done against us. Listen to that. I, I cannot be forgiven if I am unwilling to forgive. You cannot be forgiven if you're unwilling to forgive. You have closed off the flow of grace into your life if you're holding unforgiveness against people around you. And that's a decision. You don't have to wait for someone to apologize to forgive. You don't have to wait for them to take ownership to forgive. And in fact, if you are waiting on them to do all those things, then you are holding unforgiveness. And it says that God can't forgive you. The flow of grace has stopped. There's this funny transaction in the scriptures where Peter actually turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother who sins against me? 
seven times. Now, this is like his way of saying, I'm very spiritual. He's saying, I'm not going to forgive him once, twice, or three times, but in Judaism, seven is that number of perfection. He says, should I forgive him seven times? This is like a, an extreme amount of forgiveness. And Jesus replies, no, I don't tell you to forgive seven times. I say 70 times seven. He's basically saying an infinite number. And then he tells this beautiful parable. It's a parable of a man who is going before a king, and the king is going to throw him into prison because he hasn't paid back his debt. Uh, and the man begs and pleads with the king, please forgive me. I don't have the ability to pay it. And the king lets him go and erases his debt. But it says the man goes into the street immediately, sees a man who owes him just a couple of coins versus the huge sum of money that that man owed the king. And he grabs that man who owns, owes him a couple of coins, grabs him by the nape of the neck, and he says, you'll pay me or, or else, you know, he's threatening him. And one of the king's servants sees that, and he goes back and tells the king. And the king has that man dragged into the court and says, I forgave you everything, and you couldn't even show mercy for the little bit that was owed you. So you are thrown into prison, and you will be tortured until you pay back everything. Now, this is interesting, and we believe that Jesus is full of grace and compassion and mercy. He tells a very extreme story to get his point across. That God demands mercy from his people because he has been merciful to us. He demands it. The eager expectation of the Father in your life is that when people hurt and reject you, that you would sow mercy. Because he has sown way more mercy into your life than you can ever repay. If I can encourage you today, our culture is teaching you to be wildly disobedient to God and to hold people's feet to the fire when they misunderstand you, when your family calls you crazy, when the leaders around you label and dismiss and reject you. And somehow in the midst of that, Jesus' command over us is that we would learn to be wildly merciful. We wouldn't hold people's feet to the fire. That we would learn how to confront sin, but that we would learn how to absorb it and count it paid for by the cross of Jesus. Friends, living to follow Jesus means that you will forgive people that the world may call you crazy to forgive. Because we have not been given permission to ever withhold forgiveness. And I know for some of you today, you're listening to this, and there have been people who have hurt you beyond anything that you want to describe or anything that I could handle hearing. And I can't imagine the pain and the hurt that that causes you. But in the midst of that, God gives us this invitation into a way to live free and whole and wildly generous lives that we are able to forgive completely. So to the degree that the Father has forgiven you, he calls you to forgive. And so if you're hurting, I just want to ask you, come to Jesus. He'll show you what to do with the pain. If you can summon a name and a face to mind right now and think this person owes me or this person has wounded me and I hope they pay, I hate them, it's time to forgive again. It's time to count justice done by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we find a better way forward. We love you guys. Thanks for listening today. I pray that it's helpful for you to know that the power of the cross has paid for every sin you've ever committed and every sin committed against you. There is no power in sin. Amen.